My name is Jose Alvarez. I teach at New York University School of Law. This is the second part of my second lecture on the rise and evolution of bilateral investment treaties. In the second half of this lecture, I pick up the story by describing a typical investor protective U.S. bit of this early period. The much-used U.S.-Argentina bit concluded in 1991, which remains in effect and has been repeatedly used by U.S. investors in Argentina to bring many high-profile claims against that state in the wake of Argentina's economic crisis in 2001. United States Treaty with Argentina concerning the reciprocal encouragement and protection of investment signed in 1991 and in force since 1994 was based on the then most current U.S. model bit on offer, the 1987 U.S. model. This bit, included in the materials for this lecture, is characteristic of that first early group of U.S. ratified bits. As is mentioned by the State Department's letter explaining that treaty to the U.S. Senate, the bit was considered an important milestone in the incipient U.S. bit program because it was the first signal by Latin America's most prominent adherent to the Calvo Doctrine that it was ready to accord foreign investors rights that may exceed those contained in national law including the right of such investors to go to international arbitration instead of local courts. The content of the U.S. bit suggests why it was, along with the few other bits concluded by the United States prior to its NAFTA in 1994, it was widely regarded as the most investor-protective treaty concluded at the time. The PowerPoint accompanying these lectures enumerates the contents of the U.S.-Argentina treaty. The treaty extended its definition of the protected interests of aliens as wide as possible through its definition of protected investment. Investment was defined in circular fashion to extend, believe it or not, to quote, every kind of investment, such as equity, debt, service, and investment contracts, close quote. And it further included a lengthy list of examples culminating in any right conferred by law or contract and any licenses and permits pursuant to law. The protection of the treaty also extended to associated activities with investment that included not just all aspects of acquiring and disposing of property, but among other things, the sale of equity shares and other securities, close quote. The U.S. bit was plainly not an agreement confined to protecting foreign direct investment. Its right of entry, while not absolute, as is suggested by the comparable provision in the U.S.-Japan uh, FCN, that right of entry in the U.S.-Argentina treaty anticipated that foreign investors from either state would be admitted on a basis that would not discriminate on the basis of nationality, namely on the basis of national and MFN treatment. While the right of entry was subject to sectoral exceptions, as in FCNs, it was strengthened by limitations on those accepted sectors. Even those exceptions from national treatment still needed to respect, for example, the MFN guarantee, and there were other limits imposed. The need to accord investments fair and equitable treatment on, of investment, or FET, was not defined or confined. FET was elevated to the 
preambles, core, object, and purpose. See the preamble, for example, paragraph four of the treaty. It was defined as an autonomous treaty right, that is, independent of and in addition to the residual rights under customary international law to which the investor was also entitled. Under the plain text of this article, read to avoid any part of it as being superfluous, an investor gets three distinct rights. FET, the benefits of customary international law owed to aliens, such as the international minimum standard and bans on denials of justice, along with, last, full protection and security, meaning at least the right to physical protection and possibly more, and any other rights to which the investor may be entitled because, for example, the host state has entered into other treaties that impose other state obligations. Like U.S. post-World War II FCNs, the U.S.-Argentina bid provides separate guarantees against, quote, arbitrary or discriminatory, close quote, measures, as rights intended to complement its guarantees of national and most favored nation treatment. The ban on arbitrary or discriminatory treatment ensures that an investor might establish a breach of the bit if it was mass mistreated on some other basis apart from nationality discrimination. That bit, like the Germany-Pakistan bit, also includes a commitment to observe, quote, any obligation that is incurred between a state and an investor. And it is like the umbrella clause in the Germany-Pakistan bit. It might even encompass non-contractual guarantees, such as a state's promise made in a license to do business, or even perhaps made orally by the state to entice an investor to enter the country. The bid also included a novel provision, not found in prior FCNs. This bans states' efforts to impose certain performance requirements, such as a state demand that investors export a certain percentage of any goods produced in the country. States are also obligated to provide, quote, effective means, close quote, for investors to assert their claims or enforce their rights. The BIT's transparency obligations echo those found in the Japan-US FCN. They require state parties to make public all relevant laws, regulations, administrative practices, and procedures, as well as adjudicatory decisions. The familiar Hull Rule, affirmed in prior FCNs, is in this bit strengthened by making it expressly applicable to indirect as well as direct takings of property, as well as to an undefined category of government actions that are in the bit described as otherwise tantamount to an expropriation. That provision also makes clear that the fair market value that is due for expropriated property needs to reflect the value of the property before the expropriatory action was taken or became known, because that kind of announcement will have adverse effects on the market price. It also says that fair market value must include, in addition, interest and must be made in a freely transferable currency. Obligations to permit investors to freely transfer capital in and out of the country 
found in prior FCNs were clarified to include the ability to transfer freely and without delay returns, any compensation for takings, all payments arising from investor claims, payments made under a contract directly related to investments, as well as proceeds from the sale of investments. The treaty also gives investors rights to be accorded any more favorable treatment beyond that in the treaty itself, should any such rights exist in the host state's national laws or in the host state's other international obligations. This is in Article 10 of the bit. This could mean, for example, that an investor could claim any additional rights accorded under, for example, the WTO or in a human rights treaty that protects property rights. And there are property rights, for example, in the European and American human rights conventions. Although the state parties to the bit still had the right to take a dispute about the meaning of their treaty to state-to-state -state arbitration, the key enforcement tool was envisioned to be investors making their claims directly against their host states. This is in accordance with U.S. policy, and the resort to the ICJ and FCNs was replaced by a provision permitting investors to take their treaty claims directly to various arbitral venues, giving the investor a choice between ICSID and other arbitral mechanisms. And this was true even where the investor's underlying contract with the host state would have otherwise limited the investor to local courts. The clause permitting states to apply measures that would otherwise violate the treaty was simplified. In its stead is a clause permitting measures necessary for the maintenance of public order, the fulfillment of UN charter obligations relating to the maintenance or restoration of international peace or security, or the protection of a party's own essential security interests. Finally, while the minimum 10 years duration for the treaty was retained from U.S. post-World War II FCNs, existing investments made prior to the termination of this bit were given the treaty's protection for a further period of 10 years from any date of termination. Now, while many of these guarantees also appeared in contemporaneous European bits or BIPAs, the level of investor protections extended was by the U.S. treaty was more extensive, was more detailed, subject to fewer exceptions than most other countries' comparable treaties, at least as of 1991. The U.S.-Argentina bit established an elevated set of investor protections that came to be copied and emulated by many other pairs of countries doing their own bilateral treaties during the late 1990s when bits, it's fair to say, multiplied like fruit flies. Even countries whose early bits were weaker originally in terms of investor protections, like Germany's bits or China's bits, began to emulate the terms of the U.S.-Argentina bit throughout the 1990s and even later. The spread of investor protections comparable to those in early U.S. bits like U.S.-Argentina has been seen by some as evidence that the international investment regime has been heavily influenced by the United States. Thus, Wolfgang Alzheimer, in an article entitled, quote, The Americanization of the Bit Universe, The Influence of FCNs on Modern Investment Treaty Law, close quote, he argues that contemporary FTAs, free trade agreements, 
by a number of countries involve a return to the design elements of U.S. post-war War II FCNs like the U.S.-Japan FCN. The perception that even as a latecomer to BITS, the international investment regime has been Americanized owes much to the fact that as another PowerPoint here that I'm presenting suggests, the typical bit of many countries are essentially variations on the generous list of investor protections that I've described in the U.S.-Argentina bit. This PowerPoint's list of typical investor rights is an excellent guide to the contents of hundreds of bits concluded in the decades since the U.S. BIT program began. Now, to be sure, the text of each bilateral investment treaty needs to be examined on its own terms. Few treaties are identical replicas of the U.S.-Argentina BIT, but most contain recognizable variations on each of that treaty's key provisions. A key difference between U.S. bits and others of this period is also reflected on the PowerPoint. Apart from U.S. bits, most bits of other countries did not contain a right of entry comparable to what is in the U.S.-Argentina bit. Most other countries restricted national and MFN rights to post-entry treatment. That was one crucial difference. But if the United States set the standard for the highest level of investor protection ever achieved in a treaty through its early bilateral investment treaties, a standard that, as I've said, a number of countries continue to emulate, U.S. treaty practice, starting with the conclusion of the North American Free Trade Agreement's investment chapter from 1994, helped pave the way for a counter-trend that continues today. Starting with the NAFTA, the U.S. and many other leading BIT signatories began in the decades that followed to recalibrate, rebalance these treaties in ways that suggest an effort to restore sovereign regulatory policy space. The NAFTA the Free Trade Agreement between the United States, Mexico, and Canada of 1994, which included an investment chapter 11, was a complex pact that to some extent expanded the protections for the investors from the three nations. Today, however, it might be best known, best remembered, for beginning that countertrend involving the narrowing of some investor rights contained in those early U.S. bits while simultaneously expanding the power of host states to exercise what some people have called their exit and voice. Given the fact that the NAFTA, although still in effect for a period of time, is being succeeded by the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or USMCA, its terms require no separate enumeration in this lecture. Suffice to say that many of the changes to the NAFTA, such as the deletion of the Umbrella Clause, involved narrowing investor rights while expanding the capacity of the three NAFTA state parties to defend themselves from investor state claims. An example of this was the establishment in the NAFTA of a NAFTA commission consisting of officials from the three NAFTA states. That commission's power includes the ability to issue 
so long as the three state parties agree, interpretations of the NAFTA, including its investment chapter, that once they issue them, are binding on investor state arbitrators. The power to issue such binding interpretations, which seemingly includes issuing determinations, even on issues raised in pending arbitration claims, provides an important check by the states on the discretion of investor claimants to raise interpretive arguments at odds with what the NAFTA state parties desire. And the power of arbitrators is also restricted in this way. This innovative party check is now a standard feature of more recent international investment agreements and not just those involving the United States. Other states have seen it in their interests to defend themselves from investor claims the same way, by having commissions that can issue binding interpretations. Just as in earlier years, the U.S. set the pace for strengthening bits to protect investors, the U.S. essentially began that countertrend. This countertrend continues in the U.S. model bits of 2004 and 2012, and it took a dramatic turn under the Trump administration under the USMCA negotiated in 2018. I have a PowerPoint that illustrates how each of these developments suggest a downward trajectory in terms of investor protections. As I will address in my third lecture, many other states have emulated and expanded on this trade, on this trend, even while other states, in some cases, continue to negotiate bits that still look like the Germany-Pakistan bid of 1959 or the U.S.-Argentina bid of 1991. Now, the U.S. Model Treaty of 2004 is suggested and included in the readings for this lecture. It provides an illustration of how the U.S., but not just the U.S., but other states, have narrowed investor rights while expanding sovereign discretion. As compared to the U.S.-Argentina bit, the U.S. model of 2004 and treaties concluded under that model, first, narrows the definition of covered investments by avoiding that circular definition of that term included in the U.S.-Argentina bit, where investment simply means every kind of investment. Now, investment is defined as every asset that an investor owns or controls. Now, the new definition is still quite broad, but at least it implies that protected investments need to have some tangible quality of being something called an asset. More specifically, the new definition excludes from covered investment claims payments such as debts for sale of goods or services and authorizations or instruments that do not create any rights protected under domestic law. You can see this in the U.S. Model 2004 at Article 1 and its footnotes 1 and 2. A second change in the U.S. Model 2004 it is that it narrows the scope of MFN by enumerating a number of exceptions to its applications. This you can find in Articles 5 and 6 and Article 14. A third change is that the model 2004 eliminates the umbrella clause. This affirms that the omission of an umbrella clause from the NAFTA was not just a concession made in the course of that treaty, but that it was likely to be a permanent omission from U.S. treaties going forward. The U.S. model of 2004 also restricts the scope of arbitral investment disputes broader than this on the basis of an investment contract. It restricts those claims 
direct, related to provisions of an investment agreement and says that it has to be an investment agreement on which the investor relied, actually relied, in establishing or, require, or acquiring the investment. See Articles 21, 24 at 1b. A fourth change is that this model treaty eliminates the supplemental guarantee against arbitrary or discriminatory treatment, as the NAFTA did itself. This leaves investors' protection from discriminatory treatment to rest on national treatment or MFN alone. Fifth, it narrows the scope of rights to FET and full protection and security by incorporating the NAFTA Commission interpretation that had been adopted previously, which had, quote, confirmed that the U.S. meant to restrict the meaning of these guarantees, FET and full protection and security, to those under customary international law. The new FET provision accordingly states as follows. In the U.S. model BIT 2004, look at Article 5. Each party shall accord to covered investment investments treaty in accordance with customary international law, including, not just and, fair and equitable treatment and full protection and security. And then it goes on to say, for greater certainty, paragraph 1 prescribes a customary international law minimum standard of treatment of aliens as the minimum standard of treatment to be accorded to covered investments. The concepts of fair and equitable treatment and full protection and security do not require treatment in addition to or beyond that which is required by that standard and do not create additional substantive rights. The obligation in paragraph 1 to provide fair and equitable treatment includes the obligation not to deny justice in criminal, civil, or administrative adjudicatory proceedings in accordance with the principle of due process embodied in the principal legal systems of the world. And full protection and security requires each party to provide the level of police protection required under customary international law. A determination that there has been a breach of another provision of this treaty or of a separate international agreement does not establish that there has been a breach of this article, close quote. Note in this text how the meaning of FET has been limited. By noting that FET includes customary international law and is not in addition to it in paragraph 1, and this point is then made crystal clear in paragraph 2 by indicating that those terms, FET and full protection and security, accord investors just their customary rights under the international minimum, no more, no less. FET accordingly includes the right not to be denied treatment in, the, uh, treatment in the course of adjudication. And it also goes on to say that FPS, full protection and security, is only the right to physical protection of property as protected by a state police. And then paragraph three makes it clear that since FET and FPS accords only customary law rights, the violation of any other law, whether the state's own law or any other international obligation by that state, as say under the WTO, those violations do not mean that FET or FPS have been violated. A sixth change in the model of 2004 is the deletion of any assurance of more favorable rights, uh, that is, Article 10 that we discussed from the U.S. bits in the U.S.-Argentina bit. That article gave investors the benefit of any more favorable treatment that can be found elsewhere, including in national law, or in international treaties as a residual and separate article. A seventh change 
is the deletion of assurance of effective remedies. This change is consistent with the limits on FET and, F and full protection and security that I've just discussed. The change indicated here restricts investors' rights to due process by eliminating, as did the NAFTA, the clause in early U.S. bits, ensuring their access to, quote, effective local remedies. An eighth change reduces the scope of claims based on expropriation by eliminating the, quote, tantamount to expropriation language that was originally contained in early U.S. bits. And the new expropriation provision also limits claims for indirect expropriation to those that survive a complex three-factor balancing test that were originally devised by the U.S. Supreme Court in its rulings interpreting the taking clause of the U.S. Constitution. Now, arbitrators considering indirect expropriation claims must consider, first, the economic impact of the government's action, second, the extent to which that action interferes with distinct, reasonable, investment-backed expectations, and third, they must consider the character of the government action. If you want to see that language from the U.S. Model 2004, look at Article 6 and its Annex B. And if that's not enough, the expropriation provision then goes on to indicate that, quote, in except rare circumstances, non-discriminatory regulations to protect public welfare objectives, such as public health, safety, and the environment, do not amount to indirect expropriations. Look at Annex B of 4B. The ninth change limits claims based on violations of intellectual property rights by indicating that these cannot constitute expropriations of property if those actions are in accord with the trade-related aspects of Intellectual Property Rights Agreement, the TRIPS of the GATT. The tenth change limits expropriation claims based on tax measures by requiring that such claims be presented to investor state arbitration only after being presented to the competent tax authorities of both parties, and only if, within 180 days of that referral, those government tax authorities fail to agree that the tax measure is not an expropriation. This is under Article 21, Paragraph 2. This effectively imposes a state screen on investor complaints of this kind. If the state parties to a bid both agree that a tax is not a taking of property in this instance, that's the end of the story, and it cannot be challenged by an investor. The 11th change in the model, uh, and I sound like the 12 days of Christmas at this point, the 11th change uh, in this model 2004 makes it easier for a state to claim that it took defensible action to protect the rights of organized labor and or to protect the environment. The 12th change modifies ISDS in ways that may disfavor investor claimants. The U.S. models of 2004 and 2012 indicate that include a number of changes to how investor state arbitrations are conducted. These include provisions under Article 28 that explicitly permit the filing of amicus briefs by third parties that authorize an expedited preliminary procedure to dismiss frivolous claims by investors and that permit the disputing parties to make comments on the arbitrator's proposed award before that award is finalized. 
Investor claimants are likely to see all three of these changes as disfavoring their interests. Amicus briefs often come from civil society critics of the investment regime, such as environmental NGOs. They often serve as allies to the respondent state. Fast-tracking the dismissal of frivolous claims puts pressure on investors to avoid making innovative claims that are unlikely to succeed. And giving both parties, including the respondent state, the opportunity to criticize a proposed arbitral ruling undermines one key attractive quality of arbitration from an investor's perspective, namely that it is fast. The 13th change in the U.S. model of 2004 is that it continues to authorize, as did the NAFTA, the state parties to a treaty to issue interpretations that have binding effect before investor state tribunals. Look at Article 30, uh, Paragraph 3 of the U.S. model, 2004. Now, that may seem like a continuation of the NAFTA and nothing new, except that in a bilateral treaty where only two states have to agree on such an interpretation, this gives state parties an even greater opportunity to have the last word on the interpretation of their treaty, over and above the word of arbitrators. And that's much easier than where a commission interpretation requires more than two states, as under the NAFTA. And then finally, the change to the essential security clause is indicated on my, uh, on my PowerPoint at number 14, is potentially the most far-reaching of all. The new essential security clause, sometimes called a measures not precluded clause, now states the following, and this is from Article 18 of the U.S. Model of 2004, quote, nothing in this treaty shall be construed, paragraph 2, to preclude a party from applying measures that it considers necessary for the fulfillment of its obligations with respect to the maintenance or restoration of international peace and security or the protection of its own essential security interests, close quote. And the same appears in the U.S. model of 2012, as well as in the investment chapter of the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership that, that exists between 11 countries, but not the U.S. And in fact, this essential security new language finds its way to many contemporary international investment agreements today. The new words that have been added to this essential security that it considers, those three simple words, are, do appear in the NAFTA, but it was inspired by the WTO's own essential security exception at Article 21 of the GATT. It implies that a determination by a state that action is needed to protect its essential security interests is for the state alone to make, not arbitrators. Recent arbitral rulings, however, at least in the WTO, concerning this language, suggest that arbitrators are a bit reluctant to just cede their power so completely and just serve as rubber stamps to states. They are clearly reluctant to serve simply to affirm whatever a state claims. But such decisions, as well as a few under the International Dispute Settlement System for uh, Investor State Dispute Settlement, suggest that under this language, arbitrators are still more likely to defer to a state's essential security determination. 
as where they may find that such a determination was not arbitrary or was made in good faith. Now, after highly contentious debates, the Obama administration released the U.S. model of 2012, the last such model released by the United States. Now, the 2012 model also includes included in the text that I recommend for this lecture, makes no important changes to the shrinking investment protections that I've just covered from the U.S. model of 2004. And basically, it means that, they, that now under the U.S. model of 2012, the U.S. is extending those shrinkage to the next generation of U.S. bits. But the 2012 model adds a few additional wrinkles that tend to go in the same direction. That model and some international investment agreements that follow the U.S. model strengthens the labor and environmental protections that states have, which means that they have state defenses under them that are stronger than before. The new model also adds considerably to the discretion states have to take measures in the financial services sector, so that the 2012 model changes in the direction of permitting a separate exception for financial services. By contrast, the provisions to enhance investor protections in 2012 are extremely modest. These impose some modest additional requirements in favor of the transparency of government regulation, and there's also an expansion of the scope of potentially covered investments by including in the definition of territory of a party the territorial sea and high seas areas in which states may exercise sovereign rights under customary law. This makes it clear that treaty protection extends to such matters as offshore oil and gas projects and perhaps fish farms. So a description of the evolution of U.S. treaties would not be complete, however, without mentioning the USMCA which after a period of transition will replace the NAFTA as a governing law for the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. Now, it is unclear today whether the USMCA, which was concluded in 2018, will establish effectively a new model for future U.S. investment treaties or whether it will turn out to be a unique pack for those three states that is representative of the, quote, America first, close quote, policies of President Trump. What is clear is that the USMCA is the most powerful evidence yet of the U.S.'s retreat from leading the charge in favor of protecting the rights of foreign investors, even though the U.S. remains the leading home for foreign investors, including the world's leading multinational enterprises. And I have a PowerPoint indicating just how the USMCA deviates from, stand from standard U.S. policy and it does so by renouncing ISDS as between the U.S. and Canada, thereby limiting investors from those states to the local courts of Canada and the U.S., their respective hosts. The USMCA further severely restricts the likelihood that once it comes into effect, there will be very many claims filed by U.S. investors against Mexico or vice versa, Resort to ISDS, Investor State Dispute Settlement, by those respective claimants will mean limited in subject matter to violations of certain government contracts. For investor claims outside of government contracts, access to Investor State Dispute Settlement is very severely restricted insofar as the only claims that are included are violations of national and MFN treatment 
and expropriation. FET, the clause that traditionally gives investors the best chance to win, is gone. Even then, such claims are made more unlikely by preconditions. Investors must now first exhaust local remedies for 30 months before going to arbitration. And there is then a four-year statute of limitations imposed on any claims that they go and take to arbitration. The USMCA further enhances state defenses by recognizing a new general right to regulate, not restricted to that general exception under the expropriation clause uh, with respect to indirect expropriations that I've mentioned. The new USMCA also shrinks the responsibility of states by enabling local measures, as by states of the U.S., to escape scrutiny for discriminatory treatment and by limiting claims by investors of their legitimate expectations that have been frustrated. It seems clear that over time, the U.S. has retreated from the high point of investor protection it achieved when it first began its bid program. And some have argued that the U.S. changes to its investment treaties over time represent a return by the U.S. to more modest investor protections found in U.S. post-World War II FCNs. But that is not completely true. Under most of those FCNs, as we've seen, the U.S. accepted FET without imposing a clear customary international law limit on what FET means. Those FCNs did not clarify limits on the meaning of what constitutes an expropriation requiring compensation. Those FCNs, acceptance of state-to-state dispute settlement, including the ICJ, was not conditioned on an ostensibly self-judging essential security clause where, in theory at least, all that a state needs to say is, hey, my essential security made me do it, and it possibly escapes state responsibility. And yet, the U.S. models of 2004 and 2012 did all of those things. And then there is the USMCA. That treaty is a far greater retreat from the historical commitment by the U.S. to protect aliens' property and enable third-party international dispute resolution to enforce investor claims. Alexander Hamilton rose to defend both of those commitments in his defense of the U.S.'s 1794 J Treaty. Commitments to both of those goals were clear when U.S. Secretary of State Hull defended the right to compensation for government takings. They were clear when the U.S. led the battle against first the Calvo Clause and later the General Assembly's attempt to establish the NEO in the 1970s. And they were clear when Nixon put the Hull Rule and ICSID at the core of U.S. foreign policy. If the USMCA provides a prologue to the actions not just of the U.S., but of other states that have in the past copied the U.S., then the U.S. is joining many other states that, as we'll see in the third lecture, are now deeply and profoundly skeptical of the entire international investment regime and its fundamental premises, including ISDS, that I covered in my first lecture. The shrinking investor rights and expanding state defenses contained in U.S. IIAs over time are symptomatic of what many other states have done to their own treaties over time. Variations on the same changes to these treaties to rebalance them 
in favor of the respondent states that are faced with investor claims now appear many other places. They appear in the EU's international investment agreements, such as CETA between the EU and Canada. They appear in many of China's bilateral investment treaties. And they appear in the investment chapter of the TPP-2, involving 11 states from around the world, to mention just three examples. And in some cases, such as the USMCA, the USMCA has actually copied from other states. This includes the USMCA's replicating the exhaustion of remedies contained in treaty, the model treaty released by India, which has limited access to ISDS in ways that resemble the USMCA, as by introducing the prerequisite of exhaustion of local remedies. Other states, like Australia, have retreated from ISDS altogether. Australia and other countries now insist that investor claims be heard only in their local courts, as has the US and Canada under the USMCA. Why this retreat by so many states from the high water mark of investor protection set by the US-Argentina bid? I will address this in my last lecture, where I will describe the contemporary international investment regime and its legitimacy problems. Thanks for listening.